0: Please pray with me. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Last week, I preached on the calling of the disciples that we find in the Gospel of John. We looked specifically at the person of Nathaniel. Nathaniel's calling is unique. It is the only time when we find out something that drew Jesus to the disciples. Why he might have chosen them. Nathaniel was someone without guile. He was authentically himself. If we want to be disciples in the mold of Nathaniel, if we want to be worthy of the calling to which Jesus has already called us, we should strive to be authentic. I argued that a key part of personal authenticity is being comfortable with who we are and knowing that we are worthy. That means having the strength to be vulnerable. It's not an easy task, but something that we should all aim to emulate. Today, we carry on our epiphany journey and look at the more familiar calling of the disciples that's found in the Gospel of Mark. The passage opens with what is known as the kerygma, which is the Greek word for proclamation. According to scholars, this is the essence of the message of Jesus. Listen, the time is fulfilled, and the reign of God has drawn near. Change your life around, and believe in the good news. These two verses serve as the transition from the baptism and testing in the wilderness to Jesus' earthly ministry. They announce the beginning of what is to follow. Then, the scene abruptly shifts, and we find Jesus by the Sea of Galilee, not far from his hometown of Nazareth. The text, like so much in the Gospel of Mark, is sparse in its details. Jesus sees Simon Peter and his brother Andrew. They are casting their nets into the sea. They are fishermen. Jesus says to them, follow me, and I will make you fish for people. Then, without a second thought, Andrew and Peter leave their nets and follow Jesus. The text is pretty clear. They immediately followed him. So this begs the question, why? Why did Peter and Andrew move so quickly to leave their former life behind and then follow Jesus? What was going on? This is not a normal reaction, even for devoted disciples of a teacher. Normally, if you're inspired by a teacher or a leader, you'll do at least some thinking before you leave it all behind and follow this new leader but not here. Why? Some commentators have dwelt on Jesus' gaze. The text says that Jesus saw Peter and Andrew. The word for see used here can also mean to perceive or recognize. Was there something special in that gaze of Jesus's that led the disciples to leave everything there and then and follow him? Possibly. There certainly are those people whose eyes catch your attention, who have such depth to their eyes that they can motivate you. But, frankly, a gaze, even a powerful one, is usually not something that would motivate you to give up everything. Unless, of course, we're talking about Jesus the hypnotist. Now, other than looking at Peter and Andrew, the only other details we have are the words that Jesus spoke to them. Jesus says, follow me, and I will make you fish for people. So that's why we should follow Jesus, right? Hey, now you're fishing for fish. I can beat that. Come fish for people. I'll give you extra big nets. You think fishing for fish is fun. Just wait until you fish for people. This phrase is usually interpreted to mean, follow me and you'll be gathering disciples together just as I am doing now. That is the big draw to follow Jesus. If you follow Jesus, you get to be first-class evangelists. You get the chance to bring more people to the faith. Now, that prospect, I know, is attractive to all of you. If there's one thing that would lead you to leave your old life behind, it is the prospect of being an evangelist. There is nothing you enjoy more than testifying about your faith to others. Now you get to fish for people. Maybe that is what we need to have on our website. Come to FCC and we'll give you all the tracks you need to hand out to your coworkers and friends We'll teach you how to ask people if they have committed their life to Jesus. I'm sure that that Christian education class would be packed, don't you think? Hmm. Perhaps that wouldn't be the biggest selling point to follow Jesus. So is that really what drew Andrew and Peter? Did they leave everything behind so they could be evangelists, traveling around with no money and knocking on doors like Jehovah's Witnesses? This is where a closer look at the text can be illuminating. Literally, what Jesus tells them is, Come now, after me, and I will make you to become fishermen for people. Jesus is not promising them the opportunity to fish for people. He is proclaiming that, by following him, they will become new individuals, have a new calling. Whereas before, they were fishermen. Now, they will become fishermen for people. They will be changed by following him. But what might that, what might that mean? What does it mean to become a fisherman for people? Frankly, it makes little sense to think of this promise In the context of evangelism as we think of it. When Jesus first called Peter and Andrew, there was no church. Jesus didn't say, I'm founding a church and I need you to bring more people to fill the pews. Jesus was a Jew who was calling other Jews. Whatever fisherman for people means, it has to mean something that makes sense within a Jewish context. Peter and Andrew would have had to have had a sense of what the phrase might have meant. So where does the phrase show up in the Old Testament in the Hebrew Bible? What might the disciples have heard when Jesus said those fateful words? The clearest analogy to fishermen for people appears in the 16th chapter of the prophet Jeremiah. There, Jeremiah is pronouncing judgment, as he often did, to the people of Israel for their sins. Jeremiah prophesies that when the time of judgment comes, he will send out fishermen to the people to catch them. The image we find is an eschatological one. That is to say, one that deals with the end times. Fishermen for people will appear when the time is nigh. They will pull people back to God. It's a calling, a special calling. And now is the time. With Jesus' appearing, we have a new age. And for that new age, we need fishermen for people. Now think about your life. More to the point, think about how you experience time in your life. You wake up. You make breakfast and then you might read the news. If you have kids, you get them ready for school. Otherwise, you prepare yourself for work or for whatever you have planned for your day. You make to-do lists. You go through your job. Some days are more exciting than others. You come home, maybe watch some TV or read a book, then bed, then repeat. The cycle is a good one. We are lucky people. We have good lives and great people around us. But there is that sense of time marching on. The COVID crisis has made this march of time even more unusual. Time passes. We look back on the weeks and months gone by and think of all that has happened. And yet, it seems like a blur. So much has happened, and yet so much hasn't. Do you know what I mean? There have been good things. There have been bad things. Some very bad things. And then there is that march of time. One thing after another, another day older. The same thing, of course, was true for Andrew and Peter on the Sea of Galilee. They went through the paces of life, day after day. Up before dawn to go fishing. The constant motion of tossing the nets and hauling them back in. One day after another after another. Then a man appears. He's not like others they have seen. There's something special, something unique about him. He has that look in his eyes. Then the promise. Come after me and I will make you into fishermen for people. You can be a part of the new age that is dawning. You can be an instrumental part of it. Your hands can be working for God. Take a chance. It's the word that they have been waiting for something to give their lives meaning and purpose. So they drop their nets and follow Jesus. But there's more to this calling of Jesus's than simply an invitation to a different life, a break in the monotony. The calling is to be a part of the eschaton, the new age of God. It is prolectic. It anticipates a new and amazing reality. To be a Jew in the first century was to live amidst a language, a collection of symbols that had meaning for the future. Throughout the Old Testament, we read about how God will set things right. Think about Amos, chapter 5. But let justice roll down like waters, and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. This is a promise of what will happen when God, God's reign appears. Think of Isaiah chapter 40. Comfort, oh comfort my people, says your God, and even youths will faint and be weary, and the young will fall exhausted. But those who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Then there is Isaiah 58, one of my favorites. Then your light shall break forth like the dawn, and your healing shall spring up quickly. Your vindicator shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call, and the Lord will answer. You shall cry for help, and he will say, Here I am. Or think of Jeremiah 31. The days are surely coming, says the Lord, when I shall make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. I will put my law within them and write it on their hearts. And I will be their God. And they shall be my people. I could go on and on. The point is, that when you live in an environment where these words are all about you, when you hear them every Saturday in the synagogue, when you learn to anticipate the signs for God's new reign, there is a futurity futurity <laughs> built into these words. You have hope because of these words. You eagerly look for signs of this new age that you keep hearing about. Judaism in the Second Temple period was not like Judaism today. Judaism today is a form of rabbinic Judaism that emerged in the late 1st century and early 2nd century, which is after Christianity had already emerged. Rabbinic Judaism is focused on the Law and the Torah. But the Judaism of the time of Jesus was far more focused on the future and the coming age of the Lord. It was talked about constantly. People had internalized this hope. And the hope was built on a past that they'd heard about as well every Saturday. They heard every Saturday God had delivered the Israelites before. He'll do so again. God made Joseph the salvation for his people even after his brothers had left him for dead. God led the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt and through the 40 years in the wilderness. God redeemed Israel in Babylon and paved the way for their return to Palestine. In more recent history, God led his people to victory over the wicked Antiochus Epiphanes and the Maccabean Revolt in the 160s BC. It was because God had done it before That the Jews of Jesus' day knew that God could and would do it again. This was not some pie in the sky hope for people like Andrew and Peter. It was real, pregnant, anticipatory. It was the eschaton. But there was another aspect of this call that was significant. It was hopeful, it was proleptic, it anticipated a new future but it also promised a life infused with the presence of God. There are two aspects of God that we often talk about. The first is the horizontal dimension of God. God is all around us, beside us, within us. In our worship and in our prayer life, we try to be more aware of this horizontal presence of God. But in addition to being horizontal, the experience of God can also be vertical. God's presence can be transcendent. It can lift us from our present reality into the realm of the divine. It can also transform our present reality into something numinous and holy. And it is this vertical nature of God that lies at the heart of Jesus' call to Peter and Andrew. Follow me, and I will make you to become fishermen for people. In that new state, you will be a part of God's mission. You will get a taste of the transcendent in your everyday life. Your life, your actions, will have more meaning to them. You'll be aware of being a part of something truly great. Taking these two aspects of the call into consideration, it's far easier to see why Peter and Andrew would have left their nets behind and then followed Jesus. They were being called to be a part of the new age of God, the hopeful future that God had promised and that they heard about all the time. And being a part of that future meant living a life with transcendent meaning. No wonder why they left immediately when they heard these words. An opportunity like that will usually only come around once. Now, last Monday, we had the chance to celebrate Martin Luther King Jr. Day. I'll be honest that I have mixed feelings about the celebration. First off, I believe that MLK Day should be celebrated on the date of his martyrdom, April 4th, and not on the date of his birth. King was a Christian. Christianity infused all that he did in his life. Christians celebrate their martyred saints on the day of their death because it symbolizes the seriousness of the calling as well as the hope of the resurrection. But my far bigger issue with MLK Day is how King's message gets co-opted by those who would never have supported King in his lifetime. Martin Luther King Jr. was on the radical left. He advocated the immediate destruction of Jim Crow, a way of life that had defined the American South since after Reconstruction. This was radical. He did not advocate the violent path of the Black Panthers and Malcolm X, but the end goal was nevertheless just as radical. Then he was an early opponent of the war in Vietnam. He opposed U.S. militarism and the vast amount of money spent on the U.S. military. He opposed U.S. imperialism abroad. And he was, a, he was a radical advocate for the ending of poverty in the U.S. And it was in this last capacity, fighting for the rights of sanitation workers in Memphis, it was then that he was martyred. It frustrates me with people who are not fighting for racial equality, an end to militarism, or a radical rethink of economic relationships in the U.S., lift up King and then celebrate him. Listen, you can take the day off and not celebrate King. I'm fine with that. But let's be honest about his message and who he was. At the same time, for those of us who do embrace the message of King, the day can have immense power. And it has power for the same reason that Jesus' call of Andrew and Peter, call to Andrew and Peter, has power. MLK Day is about hope. It's about a new day in this country being possible. I have a dream. You can hear that refrain echoing in your mind all day on that day. It is proleptic. It anticipates a new future. And when the day is celebrated, it helps enact that very future. It doesn't deny the present present reality, but it holds out hope that this present reality does not need to define us. And, like the message of God's coming reign, it is one that is based in real history. To celebrate MLK Day is to invoke the civil rights era when the impossible did happen. Led by African Americans, people of all races work to overturn a great evil in our society. An evil that just a few years before had been seen as inevitable. That happened, it occurred. And when we talk about it, Lurking in our language is the hope that it can happen again. And like the call of the disciples, MLK Day is something that promises the vertical presence of God. Those who were involved in the struggle for civil rights could feel God's transcendent presence with them. They knew they were doing God's work. That sense of the transcendent made even their time in prison holy. Many saw what was going on and then heeded the call. They knew what the call meant and they wanted to be a part of something sacred, something special. And so they left their nets behind to go do it. This, of course, brings things back to us. This text, this calling is for us as well we rediscover this text in epiphany for a reason. It is a time that we can think about our calling and remind us of its power. To heed the call of Jesus, to get involved with others who heed the call of Jesus, is an incredible opportunity. We get to be a part of the new age that Jesus ushered in. The promise of the gospel is proleptic. It anticipates a new future, a future where all are provided for, where peace reigns, where justice is done. It has not happened yet, but we believe in it because we know it contains the truth. God has appeared before in our lives, in FCC, in our society, and God will appear again. Perhaps you hear the calling with respect to the work of social justice. You know, the new legislative session in Austin has begun, and there is work that needs to be done. You have the chance to be a part of something special and to feel God's transcendent presence when you do the work. The same holds true for the work of helping those in need in our community. There is so much need, and perhaps that's where you feel that transcendence and get a sense of the new age that's coming. The same holds true for the work of community building within FCC, and the work of education we do here, all of it is a part of the vision for the future. It is God's work. It gives our lives meaning amidst the ever-passing nature of time. Listen once again to the words of Jesus. Follow me, and I will make you to become fishermen for people. Follow him, and let it transform you into something new. Leave your nets, at least for a while, and see what you can find. The future is open. All it needs is you to answer that call once again.